0: Chapter twenty two, part two of Hypatia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hypatia by Charles Kingsley. Chapter twenty two Pandemonium, part two. A cry arose of Orestes. Orestes, hails to the illustrious prefect, thanks for his bounty. And a higher voice or two among the crowd cried, hail to Orestes, hail emperor of Africa. But there was no response. Theros is still in the bad, simpered Orestes to Hypatia. He rose, beckoned, and bowed the crowd into silence. Then after a short pantomimic exhibition of rapturous gratitude and humility, pointed triumphantly to the Palm Avenue, among the shadows of which appeared the wonder of the day, the huge tusks and trunk of the white elephant himself. There it was at last, not a doubt of it, a real elephant, and yet as white as snow, sight never seen before in Alexandria, never to be seen again. O thrice-blessed men of Macedonia, shouted some worthy on high, the gods are bountiful to you this day. And all mouths and eyes confirmed the opinion, as they opened wider and yet wider to drink in the inexhaustible joy and glory. On he paced solemnly, while the whole theater resounded to his heavy tread, and the fauns and dryads fled in terror. A choir of nymphs swung round him hand in hand, and sang as they danced along the conquering might of beauty, the tamer of beasts and men and deities. Skirmishing parties of little-winged cupids spread themselves over the orchestra, from left to right, and pelted the spectators with perfumed confits shot among them From their tiny bows, arrows of fragrant sandalwood, or swung smoking censers, which loaded the air with intoxicating odors. The procession came down on the slope, and the elephant approached the spectators. His tusks were wreathed with rose and myrtles; his ears were pierced with splendid earrings; a jeweled frontlet hung between his eyes. Eros himself a lovely winged boy, sat on his neck, and guided him with the point of a golden arrow. But what precious thing was it which that shell-formed car upon his back contained? The goddess Pelagia Aphrodite herself, yes, whiter than the snow-white elephant, more rosy than the pink-tipped shell in which she lay among crimson cushions and silver gauze. There shone the goddess, thrilling all hearts with those delicious smiles and glances of the bashful, playful eyes, and grateful wavings of her tiny hand, as the whole theater rose with one accord, and ten thousand eyes were concentrated on the unequaled loveliness beneath them. Twice the procession passed round the whole circumference of the orchestra, and then returning from the foot of the slope towards the central group around Hephaestus, deployed right and left in front of the stage. The lions and tigers were led away into the side passages. The youths and maidens combined themselves with the gentler animals into groups lessening gradually from the center to the wings, and stood expectant while the elephant came forward and knelt behind the platform destined for the goddess. The valves of the shell closed. The graces unloosed the fastenings of the car. The elephant turned his trunk over his back, and, guided by the hands of the girls, grasped the shell and, lifting it high in air, deposited it on the steps at the back of the platform. Hephaestus limped forward, and with his most uncouth gestures signified the delight which he had in bestowing such sight upon his faithful artisans of Alexandria, and the unspeakable enjoyment which they were to expect from the mystic dance of the goddess, and then retired, leaving the graces to advance in front of the platform, and with their arms twined round each other, begin Hypatia's song of invocation. As the first strophe died away, the valves of the shell reopened and discovered Aphrodite crouching on one knee within. She raised her head and gazed around the vast circle of seats. A mild surprise was on her countenance, which quickened into a delightful wonder and bashfulness, struggling with the sense of new enjoyment and new powers. She glanced downward at herself, and smiled, astonished at her own loveliness, then upward at the sky, and seemed ready with an awful joy to spring up into the boundless void. Her whole figure dilated. She seemed to drink in strength from every object which met her in the great universe around, and slowly, from among the shells and seaweeds, She rose to her full height, the mystic kesestus glittering round her waist in deep festoons of emeralds and pearls, and stepped forward upon the marble seafloor, wringing the dripping perfume from her locks, as Aphrodite rose of old. For the first minute the crowd was too breathless with pleasure to think of applause, but the goddess seemed to require due homage, and when she folded her arms across her bosom and stood motionless for an instant as if to demand the worship of the universe, every tongue was loosed, and the thunderclap of Aphrodite rang out across the roof of Alexandria and started Cyril in his chamber at the Serapeum, and weary muleteers on distant sand-hills and dozing mariners far out at sea. And then began a miracle of art, such as was only possible among a people of the free and exquisite physical training, and the delicate aesthetic perception of those old Greeks even in their most fallen days. A dance in which every motion was a word, and rest as eloquent as motion, in which every attitude was a fresh motive for a sculptor of the purest school, and the highest physical activity was manifested not as in the coarser comic pantomimes in fantastic bounds and unnatural distortions, but in perpetual delicate modulations of a stately and self restraining grace. The artist was for the moment transformed into the goddess, the theater. And Alexandria, and the courteous pageant beyond, had vanished from her imagination, and therefore from the imagination of the spectators, under the constraining inspiration of her art. And they, and she alike, saw nothing but the lonely sea around Kytheria, and the goddess hovering above its emerald mirror, saying forth on the sea, and air, and shore, beauty, and joy, and love. Philamon's eyes were bursting from his head with shame and horror, and yet he could not hate her, not even despise her. He would have done so had there been the faintest trace of human feeling in her countenance, to prove that some germ of moral sense lingered within. But even the faint blush and the downcast eye with which she had entered the theatre were gone, and the only expression on her face was that of intense enjoyment of her own activity and skill, and satisfied vanity as of a petted child. Was she accountable? A Reasonable soul? Capable of right and wrong at all? He hoped not. He would trust not, and still Pelagia danced on, and for a whole age of agony, he could see nothing in heaven or earth but the bewildering maze of those white feet, as they twinkled over their white image in the marble mirror. At last it was over. Every limb suddenly collapsed, and she stood drooping in soft self-satisfied fatigue awaiting the burst of applause, which rang through Philammon's ears, proclaiming to heaven and earth, as with a mighty trumpet blast, his sister's shame. The elephant rose, and moved forward to the side of the slabs. His back was covered with crimson cushions, on which it seemed Aphrodite was to return without her shell. She folded her arms across her bosom and stood smiling as the elephant gently wreathed his trunk around her waist and lifted her slowly from the slab in act to place her on his back. The little feet, clinging half fearfully together, had just risen from the marble. The elephant started, dropped his delicate burden heavily on the slab, looked down, raised his forefoot, and throwing his trunk into the air, gave a shrill scream of terror and disgust. The foot was red with blood, the young boy's blood, which was soaking and bubbling up through the fresh sand where the elephant had trodden in a round dark purple spot. Philemon could bear no more. Another moment, and he had hurled down through the dense mass of spectators, clearing rank after rank of seats by the sheer strength of madness, leaped the balustrade into the orchestra below, and rushed across the space to the foot of the platform. Pelagia, sister, my sister, have mercy on me, on yourself. I will hide you, save you. AND WE WILL FLEE TOGETHER OUT OF THIS INFERNAL PLACE, THIS WORLD OF DEVILS. I AM YOUR BROTHER. COME. She looked at him one moment with wide, wild eyes. The truth flashed on her. BROTHER. And she sprang from the platform into his arms. A vision of a lofty window in Athens, looking out over far olive yards and gardens, and the bright roofs and basins of the Piraeus, and the broad blue sea, with the purple peaks of Aegina beyond all. And a dark-eyed boy, with his arm around her neck, pointed laughing to the twinkling masts in the far harbor, and called her sister. The dead soul woke within her, and, with a wild cry, she recoiled from him in an agony of shame, and covering her face with both her hands, sank down among the blood-stained sand. A yell as of a hell broke loose rang along that vast circle, down with him, away with him, crucify the slave, give the barbarian to the beasts. To the beasts with him, noble prefect! A crowd of attendants rushed upon him, and many of the spectators sprang from their seats and were on the point of leaping down into the orchestra. Philemon turned upon them like a lion at bay, and clear and loud his voice rose through the roar of the multitude. Aye, murder me as the Romans murdered St. Telemachus, Slaves as besotted cursed. accursed, "'as you besotted and accursed tyrants. "'Low than the beasts whom you employ as your butchers. "'Murder and lust go fitly hand in hand, "'and the throne of my sister shame "'is well built on the blood of innocence. "'Let my death end the devil's sacrifice "'and fill up the cup of your iniquity. "'To the beasts! "'Make the elephant trample him to powder, and the huge brute, goaded on by the attendants, rushed on the youth, while Eros leapt from his neck and fled weeping up the slope. He caught Philemon in his trunk and raised him high in air. For an instant the great bellowing ocean of heads spun round and round. He tried to breathe one prayer and shut his eyes. Pelagius' voice rang sweet and clear, even in the shrillness of intense agony. Spare him. He is my brother. Forgive him, men of Macedonia, for Pelagia's sake, your Pelagia. One boon, only this one. And she stretched her arms imploringly towards the spectators, and then clasping the huge knees of the elephant, called madly to it in terms of passionate entreaty and endearment. The men wavered. The brute did not quietly he lowered his trunk and set down philemon on his feet the monk was saved breathless and dizzy he found himself hurried away by the attendants dragged through dark passages and hurled out into the street with curses warnings and congratulations which fell on an unheeding ear but pelagia kept her face still hidden in her hands and rising walked slowly back crushed by the weight of some tremendous awe across the orchestra and up the slope and vanished among the palms and oleanders regardless of the applause and entreaties and jeers and threats and curses of that great multitude of sinful slaves for a moment all orestes spells seemed broken by this unexpected catastrophe a cloud whether of disgust or of disappointment hung upon every brow more than one christian rose hastily to depart touched with real remorse and shame at the horrors of which they had been the willing witnesses the common people behind having glutted their curiosity with all that there was to see began openly to murmur at the cruelty and heathenry of it Hypatia, utterly unnerved, hid her face in both her hands. Orestes alone rose with the crisis. Now or never was the time for action, and stepping forward with his most graceful obeisance, waved his hand for silence and began his well-studied oration. Let me not, O men of Macedonia, Suppose that you can be disturbed from that equanimity which befits politicians by so light an accident as the caprice of a dancer. The spectacle, which I have had the honor and delight of exhibiting to you, rose and applause from the liberated prisoners and the young gentlemen, and on which it seemed to me you have deigned to look with not altogether unkindly eyes, Press applause in which the Christian mob relenting began to join. is but a pleasant prelude to that more serious business for which I have drawn you here together. Other testimonials of my good intentions have not been wanting in the release of suffering innocence and in the largest of food, the growth and natural property of Egypt. "'destined by your late tyrants to pamper the luxury of a distant court. "'Why should I boast? Yet even now this head is weary. "'These limbs fail me, worn out in ceaseless efforts for your welfare, "'and in the perpetual administration of the strictest justice. "'For a time has come in which the Macedonian race, "'whose boast is the gorgeous city of Alexander,' must rise again to the political pre which they held of old, and becoming once more the masters of one-third of the universe, be treated by their rulers as freemen, citizens, heroes, who have a right to choose and to employ their rulers. Rulers, did I say? Let us forget the word, and substitute in its place the more philosophic term of ministers to be your minister, the servant of you all. To sacrifice myself, my leisure health life if need be, to the one great object of securing the independence of Alexandria. This is my work, my hope, my glory, longed for through weary years, now for the first time possible by the fall of the late puppet emperor of Rome. Men of Macedonia, remember that Honorius reigns no more. An African sits on the throne of the Caesars. Heraclean by one decisive victory, has gained by the favor of, of heaven the imperial purple. And a new era opens for the world. Let the conqueror of Rome... Balance his account with that Byzantine court, so long the incubus of our transmediterranean wealth and civilization, and let the free, independent, and united Africa rally round the palaces and docks of Alexandria and find there its natural centre of polity and prosperity. A roar of higher applause interrupted him, and not a few half for the sake of his compliments and fine words, half from a natural wish to be on the right side, namely the one which happened to be in the ascendant for the time being joined. The city authorities were on the point of crying Imperator Orestes, but thought better of it, and waited for someone else to cry first, being respectable. Whereon the prefect of the guards, being a man of some presence of mind, and also not in any wise respectable, pricked up the prefect of the docks with the point of his dagger, and bade him, with a fearful threat, take care how he played traitor. The worthy burgher roared incontinently, whether with pain or patriotism, and the whole array of respectabilities, having found a courteous who would leap into the gulf, Joined in a unanimous chorus and saluted Orestes as emperor, while Hypatia, amid the shouts of her aristocratic scholars, rose and knelt before him, writing inwardly with shame and despair, and entreated him to accept that tutelage of Greek commerce, supremacy, and philosophy which was forced on him by the unanimous vote of an adoring people. "'It is false!' shouted a voice from the high tears, "'appropriate to the women of the lower classes, "'which made all turn their heads in bewilderment. "'False! False! You are tricked!' "'He is tricked!' Heraclian was utterly routed at Ostia, "'and is fled to Carthage with the emperor's fleet in chase. "'She lies! Drag the beast down!' cried Orestes, "'utterly thrown off his balance, By the sudden check she he i a monk brought the news cyril has known it every jew in the delta has known it for a week past so perish all the enemies of the lord caught in their own snare and bursting desperately through the women who surrounded him the monk vanished an awful silence fell on all who heard for a minute every man looked in his neighbour's face as if he longed to cut his throat and get rid of one witness at least of his treason. And then arose a tumult which Orestes in vain attempted to subdue. Whether the populace believed the monk's words or not, they were panic-stricken at the mere possibility of their truth. Horse with denying, protesting, appealing, the would-be emperor had at last to summon his guards around him in Hypatia, and make his way out of the theater as best he could, while the multitude melted away like snow before the rain, and poured out into the streets in eddying and roaring streams, to find every church placarded by Cyril with the particulars of Heraclean's ruin. End of chapter 22